Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 72. This is a blessing on the king of Israel. It says that it's of Solomon. But also in its description of an ideal king and the ideal blessing of God upon this king is pointing us ultimately beyond Solomon to Solomon's much, much greater son. Let's hear what this king is like. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Let's turn now to Acts 6, where we'll read verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. 
And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. You may be seated. Something I've tried to do repeatedly as we've worked our way through the book of Acts so far is to point out how the events that are taking place in the church's life and the work of the apostles um, are really expressions of what Christ is doing. What the, the, the ascended Christ from his heavenly throne after he ascends into heaven in chapter 1. And you may remember that book title that I've mentioned several times, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. After Jesus ascends into heaven in chapter 1, then it's Christ who pours out the Holy Spirit on the church at Pentecost in chapter 2. In chapter 3, it's Christ who heals the lame man through Peter and John in the temple. In chapter 5, it's Christ who uh, judges Ananias and Sapphira. It's Christ who sends his angel to release all of the apostles from prison. Now, we come here to the beginning of chapter 6, and you might think, well, here, uh, this is a little bit different, because here there's nothing particularly supernatural going on, nothing spectacular. This is just a bunch of church leaders getting together and trying to figure out the solution to a problem that's come up, and um, this is just kind of logistic. This is just basic delegation, basic stuff going on here in the, the, the human side of the life of the church. Well... That's the way it may look at first. But what what I want to show you today, I hope to persuade you, is that, that yes, this is about the apostles working to solve a problem. Yes, it it is, in fact, about logistics. It is, in fact, about um, delegation. But this is still Christ ruling over his church here. Christ is the one who is at work, seeing to it that all of his people are provided for. And the really remarkable thing is the way Christ is doing that. Christ is doing that work for his people and for the poor among them through these logistics, through this delegation of leadership and responsibility, through these newly minted deacons, through the hands of these people to whom he's entrusted this work to carry out his work in the life of the church on earth. And I hope that we'll be able to see together then that all of the church's mercy ministry then is and ought to be about Christ's work, about Christ's compassion for people, about Christ's concern and provision for every single one of uh, his, his people in the church. And so uh, that means that when we participate in that ministry, not just the leaders, but all of us, um, we're ultimately not just serving people. We are serving Christ because it's his work that we're carrying out. It's his love. It's his care that we're supposed to be demonstrating to one another. So let's look at this passage in just three very basic parts this morning. The labels are going to be very simple. Verse 1, the problem. Verses 2 to 6, the solution. And verse 7 is the outcome. So first, the problem. It's the problem here. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. 
So we have to ask first, what is a Hellenist as opposed to a Hebrew? The Hellenists uh, were simply Greek-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. So they, they were Jewish. Now, these are not Gentiles. They're Jewish ethnically and religiously. But their families were from backgrounds in what's called the, the diaspora, um, uh, which is the, the Jews living outside of Israel. There were very many Jewish people whose families had lived uh, maybe for generations outside of uh, Israel, all around the Mediterranean world. And you may remember from chapter 2, the Pentecost chapter, it said there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And so if you were Jewish and you grew up in Israel, um, your family had been living in Israel for a long time, well, then you probably have grown up speaking Aramaic. That, would be your, that was Jesus' uh, birth language, native language. But um, if you were from a Jewish family living outside of Israel, then you'd more likely be a Greek speaker, not an Aramaic speaker. Uh, although that's the case, that you'd, you'd grow up speaking Greek, though, you'd, you still would think of Jerusalem as central to your religious life, as central to your identity as part of the people of Israel, because you're still a Jew. And so you're speaking Greek, but you still think of yourself as Jewish. Well, in the first five chapters of Acts, um, the growth of the church has been taking place so far in Jerusalem among Jewish people. So later we're going to get to the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, but for now uh, it's taking place in Jerusalem to, with uh, Jews coming to faith in Christ. But think about who makes up that group of Jews living in Jerusalem. Well, it's not just Jerusalem natives. It's not just Aramaic-speaking people. There are, there are these Jews from all around the known world uh, who had different languages, who had different experiences um, from what you might call the Jerusalem like, counties, the locals, right? And so now here comes Christianity. And uh, very rapidly, many people of both backgrounds, Aramaic-speaking and Greek-speaking, um, are being thrown together in the church. And they're, they're united by their common faith in Christ. They're united by the one Holy Spirit that's been poured out on all of them, regardless of their uh, language or their background. Uh, we've known ever since chapter 2 that Jews from many different places are getting incorporated into the church. But so far in the history here, those, those differences in their backgrounds and their language and culture and so on haven't come up as a problem. Instead, Luke has been emphasizing, well, everything so far has, has pointed to the tremendous unity and love and care for each other that the whole church has been showing. Uh, what we've called that culture of commonality that we've seen more than once where the people are, are treating their possessions thinking, this is not mine to hold on to, it is mine to give to whoever has a need that I can meet. Um, in practice, though, there was a, a significant kind of hole in this arrangement, the way that it was working out in practice. Um, it seems like people's hearts are generally in the right place. This, this spirit of generosity was widespread, but that didn't mean that all of the needs were actually getting met. I, I don't think Luke's indicating here that, that people were deliberately discriminating against the um, Greek-speaking widows on purpose, maliciously. Uh, but the reality was that some of these vulnerable women were simply slipping through the cracks. Um, we can have the, the very best of intentions and still make serious mistakes in mercy ministry. 
Uh, We make mistakes um, not just because of our sinfulness and selfishness, although that can play a part. We also have to recognize we can make mistakes just because of of our ignorance. We make mistakes because of our lack of skill, because of our limitations, because we are not God. So perhaps it was just easier for the Aramaic-speaking people to kind of notice and remember and clue in to the needs of the people that they were aware of because they were closest to them, most naturally attuned to. We only have so much mental space, and each one of us can only notice and attend to so many needs. That's just the way we are. But that's not an excuse. You see, this ministry needed to be taking place, and the fact that it wasn't taking place is a serious problem. We need to watch out in the church today for the danger of missing our opportunities, missing our calling to help and to love and to give sacrificially simply because we're not aware. But not being aware is no excuse. Because, you see, as the church, we have the responsibility, we have the duty to make ourselves aware. Because Jesus has told us outright at the very beginning, the poor you always have with you. That's a fact of life in this world until Christ returns. The needs are out there whether we see them or not. And so not seeing them or refusing to see them or pretending not to see them is not an excuse. The responsibility to care for people is there for us whether we see them or not. What a tragedy, then, if we never give that relief, that help, that comfort of Christ to others because we haven't gone out and discovered on purpose where it is that, that we can make an impact because we were so stuck in our own comfort zone, in our own sort of rut of daily life, that we simply couldn't look up and look around and see what, what it is that we're missing. And the fact is that there are people around us all the time who are getting overlooked And their needs aren't going away just because nobody sees them or notices them. So, mercy ministry starts with a new kind of seeing for the people of God. Cluing in on purpose to where the needs are. Because that's the work that Christ has given us to do towards one another. But to fulfill that responsibility of the church effectively, um, the church needs leaders to direct and to plan and to organize us to go about our collective job of mercy ministry in an orderly and careful way so that people don't fall through the cracks. It takes leadership to organize and head this up. And so that's what we're seeing being established in verses 2 to 6, which is the solution to this great problem. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. Again, this is not just something the apostles do from the top down. This is the whole body of believers who have responsibility for this task and who have responsibility for identifying and putting leaders in place to lead them in it. It is not right, the apostles said, that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And I want to clarify something right off the bat before we go on. Because it could come across in this statement that the apostles think that serving tables is somehow beneath them be a spirit of arrogance. But actually, quite the contrary is true. If you think about what's actually happening in this context historically, so far the apostles actually have been the ones in charge of this task. And they've been uh, doing it gladly, but what they're recognizing here is their limitations. That this is, we, we, we can't do everything, and apparently we're not doing this work effectively. They're recognizing we are not God. We cannot do everything for everybody. 
they're also in affirming the very high importance in the church of serving tables. And by, by that, they mean uh, the whole system of providing food for uh, vulnerable people like these Hellenistic widows. And so the apostles are kind of torn here. It's really important that the food distribution continue. It's also really important that the preaching of the word continue. Uh, why? Because, well, that's the explicit mission that Christ gave to the apostles before his ascension. But then you turn that over again, and you think, well, what is it going to do for the ministry of the word if people hear it, and then they look at the church community and they say, well, I don't want to believe that message because look at the fruit that it's bearing. I don't want to be part of that community because look at the way they're, they're neglecting the most vulnerable people among them. And so here's the thought process behind what the apostles decide to do. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So in other words, there are, there are some parts of the church's work that only we can do. That's what the apostles are saying. Um, and, and that work is being the unique foundational public witnesses to Christ's resurrection from the dead. There are only 12 people who can do that, and that's the apostles. And, and that, then, that job of being public witnesses to the resurrection of Christ, that's what needs to consume their time and attention and energies. We are apostles, and so we need to carry out the work of apostles, uh, and uh, there are only 12 of us who can do that. On the other hand, there are other people in the church who are not apostles, who don't have that unique job, that specific and narrow commission from Christ, who, it turns out, are very well-suited, in fact, maybe better suited than we are, to take the lead on other aspects of the church's work, and that is why they end up appointing uh, these seven deacons. There's another mistake that we could make here. That's the mistake of thinking that, well, on the one hand, you have the spiritual work of the church, which is the preaching of the word. And then on the other hand, you have the practical work of the church, which is the serving of tables. The instructions the apostles give for how to choose these, how the church is to choose these new leaders, suggest, again, quite the contrary. It's not a distinction of spiritual versus practical. He says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. This points out something very important about how we ought to choose new deacons in the church, how we ought to pray for the deacons that we have. Number one, diaconal ministry is a spiritual task, with a capital S spiritual. The apostles wanted the church to look for men who were of good repute and known to be full of the Holy Spirit. They were to be godly men. When you look at Paul's requirements for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, later you, you may remember from our recent sermon series, those qualifications are mainly about that man's character, not primarily about his abilities. They're about godliness. And this is because the work of mercy ministry requires, more than anything else, godliness. It requires the humility and compassion and graciousness and integrity uh, that characterize a man who's becoming more like Jesus. Um, it requires, you think of this, the, the love and joy and peace. Think of those fruits of the Spirit. Um, 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, those are exactly the kinds of character traits of a person who's going to be really effective at caring for the poor, uh, for needy people. They're, they're character traits that come from where? Well, they come from the Holy Spirit. These men need to be full of the Spirit and of good repute. So pray for your deacons here at Resurrection. You need to pray for them um, that they would be men of good repute and full of the Holy Spirit. So we should be praying for them. And, and, and as we pray for new deacons uh, here at Resurrection in the future, to join with them in their work of leadership. Pray that God would give us, above all else, godly men. Godly men who are full of the Holy Spirit. Number two, these men need to be full of wisdom. They be full of wisdom. Mercy ministry requires wisdom. Uh, it can be really challenging uh, to figure out the right thing to do uh, when people are, are really suffering in complicated ways. And, and then that suffering is so often complicated maybe by their, by their sin. And, and you want to help in a way that won't hurt in the long run. And it's really hard. It takes wisdom. So you should pray for your deacons here, again, that God would give them wisdom for their task because that's one of the things they need the very most. And you should pray that God would raise up more wise men here at Resurrection to help in leading that work. Okay, now let's look at verse 4 next where the apostles say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And um, this demonstrates a further principle of diaconal ministry in the church, that diaconal leadership serves to focus, to focus the word ministry of the church. So that the word ministry of the church can be like a laser beam concentrated wholly on gospel proclamation. The apostles are not ordaining these deacons so that the apostles can get out of doing work. Not at all. They are ordaining these deacons so that they can devote themselves all the more energetically and with a renewed singleness of purpose and strenuous effort in service to Christ through the ministry of the word. Uh, there's something that you, you can't really see clearly in English here um, that's significant in the Greek. Uh, some good Bible scholars, uh, faithful Bible scholars, are, are kind of skeptical of the idea that these seven men were really, in fact, the church's first deacons. Obviously, that's the approach that I'm taking. I've said that repeatedly. It's in the sermon title. I think these are the first deacons in the church, although no doubt the office developed over time as it was established in all of the local churches as we see in the pastoral epistles. But um, the reason that they give for this skepticism is that the, the Greek word for deacon, diakonos, is not found in these seven verses. But there is another word that is found here, a related word, and it's the word to serve tables. The word for serve is diakonain. It sounds very similar to diakonos because that's where diakonos comes from. A diakonos, a deacon, is a servant. What does a servant do? He serves. What does a deacon do? He deacons. He serves. And so even though the term deacon isn't used, we can look at what's the job, what's the function of these men. What are they called to do? Well, they're called to deacon. They're called to serve. We can go a step further. Here's what's really interesting in verse 4. Another related word is used about what the apostles are going to do. The apostles are not saying in verse 4, 
Well, those seven men need to serve so that we can rule. They're not saying they need to work so that we can live in luxury. They need to get their hands dirty so that we can kind of stay above the fray. That's not what's going on here. No. They say we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry, diakonia, of the word. See, the apostles, too, are called to be servants. They're not setting aside the serving of tables so that they won't have to serve at all. They're trading one kind of service for another kind of service. Uh, They're delegating the table service so that they can concentrate more fully on the word service. See, there's kind of a sense in which the, the phrase diaconal ministry is almost redundant because ministry means service, and diaconal means service. So it's kind of like saying service, service. But it's also not the only kind of service, right? All leadership in the church is to be servant leadership following the example of Christ. And there are different kinds of service, right? There's table service, table ministry, and then there's word service, word ministry. Uh, But the, the deacons and the apostles are equally servants. Servants of Christ and servants of Christ's people. That is the model for biblical leadership. And so in that way, then, both of them are agents representing in the life and the work of the church the servitude, the ministry, the diaconia of the great deacon with a capital D, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what Jesus said about his own mission. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To deacon, the same word group that's used there, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about the feeding of the 5,000. Was Jesus above serving tables? No, he wasn't. What did he say to the apostles that day? He said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. That's the heart of Christ for the hungry, for those who are weary and heavy laden. And you see, it is the will of Christ to give them rest and refreshment and comfort and help. And how does he intend to do that? Well, he intends to do that through us, through people, through limited people who can't do everything, but they they can do some of the work that Christ has given them to do. He intends to carry out this care of his for hurting and hungry and helpless people through our hands and feet. That's, that's how he's planned to accomplish it. And so Christ, from his heavenly ascended throne of heaven, has appointed the office of deacon not to do that task for us. By the way, that's very important. He's given the church deacons to lead us in that task and to see that it gets done to see that nobody gets overlooked, that nobody gets left behind. Earlier we read Psalm 72. That speaks of the great king of God's kingdom, who is going to do what? He's going to defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy. He's the king who delivers the needy when he calls, and the poor and him who has no helper, and he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Who is that talking about? In the end, it's talking about 
Jesus. And as the servants, all of us, of that king, that should be our work as well in his name. And how could we do otherwise? Anyway, when that great king has himself served us so extravagantly by laying down his very life on the cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have eternal life as a gift from him instead of the death that we deserve as the consequence for our sins. We who naturally, Revelation says, are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So we're to see ourselves apart from Christ. But Christ has given us, instead of that poverty, the riches of heaven, an eternal inheritance. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, through his poverty for us, might become rich. One last observation I want to make about mercy ministry and deacons in the church, and this is the third point, the outcome. It's easy for us to uh, compartmentalize and think, well, I guess there's missions and evangelism over on one side, proclaiming the gospel, and then there's this other kind of sidebar to the church's life where, well, Christians are also called to take care of people's needs and love each other. And um, it's true that gospel proclamation and mercy ministry are not the same thing. And that's a mistake that we can make. Uh, In fact, that's the whole point of verse 2. Both things need to be done, and they're not the same thing, and no one person can do it all. When we collapse the two things together, that's when we get what's called the social gospel, which is a false gospel, which teaches that the gospel equals care for people's physical needs, that caring for people's physical needs is the gospel. That's false. That's not what Christ taught. It's not what's being exemplified in Acts. No, mercy ministry is the practical fruit of the gospel of salvation from sin by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone through his death and resurrection for sinners. Mercy ministry is a fruit of that in the life of the church. But it's also really important that we see here in verse 7 the connection between mercy ministry and mission. As much as we want to be cautious not to collapse them, we also must be cautious not to divorce them. Because immediately after the church takes this step to make sure these Hellenist widows never get neglected again, immediately after these men are appointed to lead the church's work of caring for the poor, what happens? You get this yet another summary statement. Luke several times goes back and zooms out and gives a big picture of what's going on in the the life of the church in Jerusalem as God is building it up and adding to its number. And it's significant that verse 7 comes right after the appointment of these deacons. And it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. See, caring for people's practical needs is not the gospel, but it is inseparable from the gospel, and it is a very powerful means in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ for the spread of the gospel. What did Jesus say? He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And the church that uh, cares for the hungry, that cares for the hurting and the helpless, is a church that the watching world is going to look at and going to see There is love here. They are living consistently with the message that they're proclaiming rather than contradicting it in their lives. And this the Jesus that they're telling me about, well, the the way that they live is a lot like the way that 
they're describing him to me. So may that be true, not only of our message, but may that be true of our community here at Resurrection as we seek to serve the one who so served us and as we seek to give our lives to him and to others in gratitude to the one who gave his life for ours. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you have served us and for the way you have given the Lord Jesus to serve us, to give everything for us. And Lord, as he gave himself for us, we give ourselves to you. We ask that you would use us for your purposes, especially in the lives of those who are hurting and vulnerable and helpless. Lord, that's all of us, apart from Jesus. Pray that you would help us not to set ourselves above others in arrogance, but to see all of us laid low, depending totally on your grace. As all of us ought to be poor in spirit. And then out of that poverty of ourselves, taking confidence in the riches that Christ has provided, so we can give the help that he's commanded to the people you've called us to serve. In his name, we pray all of this in his name. Amen.